You're listening to the Mens Rea Podcast, and this is the story of the Brighton Trunk Murders. tiny fishing village called Brighthelmston, the city of Brighton first became fashionable in the late 18th century as a place to take beneficial waters from the sea, and the place began to draw crowds of visitors. In 1783, King George IV moved to Brighton, and the popularity of the area grew exponentially. It became what we think of as a quintessential seaside town, with piers and seaside entertainments. Along with the gorgeous Regency buildings of the Palace Pier and the notorious Royal Pavilion, other posh buildings began to follow as money flooded into the town, and it grew into a popular seaside resort. As the 19th century came about, the city was further developed into splendid Georgian accommodations for those wishing to rent apartments. But behind all this tourism of wealthy visitors down to take the waters, the accompanying development and splendour lurked tenements and hordes of the poor as the population grew quickly. Many of the traditional occupations, like fishing, were pushed out by the development. Railings were erected along the seafront, which stopped fishermen drying out their nets there. A number of piers were built, and steamships began bringing passengers from Brighton to northern France. In 1841, the railway from London opened, and visitors streamed into the town. And soon, other modern developments followed. Electricity, and museums, and libraries, and hospitals. So the 19th century was one of development in Brighton, and with its influx of money and people and poverty and tenements, crime came too. Throughout most of British history, Nothing was more entertaining than a good, scandalous crime. In 1831, the people of Brighton would be provided with one. That would include everything from affairs, to finding God, to murder most foul. And the public and press would be riveted as the whole thing played out in front of them. The 13th of August, 1831, was a rainy day in Brighton. On Lover's Walk, a footpath leading towards Preston Manor, the heavy rain had washed some of the topsoil away from the slopes lining the path. A passing fisherman noticed a trunk that was now only partially covered by the earth of the bank. There was bloodstained clothing lying nearby. When he took a closer look and opened the trunk, he found the partial remains of a young woman, not quite a body, as the head and arms were missing. She had been pregnant when she died. The body was tiny, only four foot three inches, and so being unusually short, the woman was quickly identified as being Celia Holloway. As the news spread across the town, her husband, John, went into hiding, along with his other wife, Anne Kennett. 
John Holloway was known as a drunkard, petty criminal, and scoundrel, and he had met Celia at the race course. Celia was working in service as a maid, basically, at the time, in Brighton, and she had fallen for John. He insisted that he had no feelings for her, but led her on anyway, taking advantage of her feelings for him. He said of her once that he wouldn't be seen with her during the day. Either way, their relationship continued after a manner, and eventually, Celia became pregnant. John wanted nothing to do with Celia once he found out that she was pregnant, but Celia told the authorities about what he was up to, and he was thrown in Lou's jail until he agreed to marry her, which he eventually did after five weeks, very grudgingly. Their relationship was rocky to begin with, but then Celia miscarried the baby. John was furious. He had now married this woman for no reason, he thought. He pursued and fooled around with other women, but he was married to Celia, so he did continue a relationship with her. He described their relationship as on and off for about three years, though it was what was described as tumultuous. He did become increasingly violent with her. Eventually, he took up with and actually went ahead and married, illegally, Anne Kennett, and by the summer of 1831, the two women were both expecting babies at the same time. John decided to leave Celia once and for all, but Celia was having none of it and again went to the authorities. John was ordered to pay her maintenance of ten pence a week. Yet again, he was furious. He didn't make much to begin with, but this amount really cut into the funds available to him for gallivanting and drinking, and was certainly putting Anne off. He was a painter and sometimes sailor based at the chain pier at the time, and his income couldn't support the lot of them. So he decided that there was only one thing to do about the problem of Celia. He met her at a house in North Stain Row, also known as Donkey Row, which was a street basically of slums. He told Celia that they were going to start over, and promised her the world, and as he called her close to embrace her, he slipped a rope around her neck and strangled her. When she struggled, John called for help, and Anne came out of hiding in a nearby cupboard and helped John to hold the rope tight around Celia's neck until she was dead. To be doubly sure, the pair tied Celia up by the neck in the closet and left her there overnight. Holloway came back to the hovel the next day to dispose of the body. He had worked as a butcher's boy at one point in his youth and wasn't unfamiliar with knives, so he began by removing Celia's head, arms, and legs. He then piled her torso into the small trunk she had filled with her few belongings, which he transported by handcart out to the wooded lane near Preston Park. He threw her limbs and head into a privy to try and ensure that Celia would not be identified. That was in Margaret Street, where Holloway happened to live at the time of the murder. The discovery of the body was made on a Friday evening some three weeks later, and the body was removed to a local barn to await the inquest. That weekend, hundreds of people called down to the lane and over to the barn, where they paid to see the body. It was quite clear from the start that the body was that of Celia Holloway, and there was very little question over who was thought to be responsible. And Kennett was arrested at their lodgings, and eventually John Holloway presented himself at the prison, hearing that the police were after him, 
but professing his innocence. On the Sunday, a coroner's jury was impaneled and Holloway and his second wife, Anne Kennett, were brought in from the prison where they were being held. David Maskell, a labourer who discovered the torso in the trunk, gave evidence. He told about how he had investigated the clothing and bad smell a few times and had never thought to inform the police. He did, however, bring a friend the second time, Gabriel Gillam, who couldn't shake the experience and returned the next day. He then told a local constable of his discovery, but only after he had informed his mother and wife, and the women had insisted that they be taken out to investigate. Gossipy women, you know. The doctor who initially examined the partial corpse in the shed was also called on to describe the state of the remains, as well as the fetus that had also died in the attack. Celia's sister, Catherine Bishop, testified about the Holloway's relationship and the maintenance that John had paid Celia, often sending the two shillings to her by way of Anne Kennett herself. Catherine identified the clothing found in the shallow grave as belonging to her sister. Mrs. Amelia Simmons, Celia's landlady, gave evidence of Holloway coming to take Celia to live somewhere else. She said that the last time she saw Celia was over a month ago, when she was told that the two were going to be living together again. She also told about how Celia had very little money and that they often helped her out when she had no food. John had treated her very badly, she said. She identified Celia's belongings, including a box that had contained her clothes when she left the Simmons' house, which was now splattered with blood. Mr. Simmons also gave evidence of the threats John had made to Celia. Holloway insisted that he had had nothing to do with his wife's death and implied strongly that she had gone off to London. But the jury did not believe him and returned a verdict of willful murder, and Holloway was sent back to prison to await his full trial. Anne was next up at the coroner's inquiry a few days later. Much of the same evidence was laid out against her. She, too, was brought up on charges of the murder of Celia Holloway. After the coroner's inquiry, Holloway decided that he would confess to the murder. He told the authorities about how he had lured Celia to the flat, killed her, cut her up, and disposed of her body. He insisted that he had done this without any help from any other person. Letters sent to papers that had published the confession gave the detail that Holloway was agitated and upset giving the confession, not cold and indifferent, like had been reported though there were definitely also details that Holloway himself had massaged to put Anne in the clear of assisting with the murder. He was eager for them to believe that he was solely responsible, and that he was now a repentant, godly man who wanted nothing but the salvation of his soul through the Lord. He also couldn't stop talking. In a further statement to authorities, Holloway decided to tell them that he in fact knew two Anne Kennets, and that neither Anne Kennett was involved in the murder, but if she was in any way involved in it, it was because he had threatened her. But no one else was involved, and if they were, he may have killed them and buried them near the sea, but by now, the body may not even be there anymore, so if they couldn't find one, that's why. Right. Very believable. Holloway's trial took place on the 14th of December at Lewes, 
with Mr. Justice Patterson presiding. He was joined in the dock by Anne Kennett when his turn came about, who had to be helped to stand when the indictment was read, such was her distress. Both were charged with murder. Kennett was charged as an accessory and also for aiding and abetting. Holloway pled not guilty, despite his various confessions. The men who discovered the body and the head and arms in the privy were called and told their tales. Holloway had no legal counsel and so questioned the witnesses himself, who he accused of lying and reburying the body. The doctors who examined the remains of Celia also took to the stand and described her dismemberment and her cause of death as either being strangulation with a cord, as Holloway had initially stated, or that she had been killed by a knife, her throat cut. Both arrests were described. The court was told about Kennett pawning and selling clothing, later identified by Celia's family as belonging to her, some small baby things, dresses, and an apron. The jury was shown Holloway's marriage certificates, and testimony was heard from the parishes that had dealt with arranging the marriage and the maintenance payments. Neighbours and relatives told the story of the last time that they saw Celia, going off to live with Holloway, who was transporting her belongings in a small trunk that her body would later be found in, and that they had later seen Holloway struggling with bags containing items from the murder scene that he later disposed of down the sewers. When the confessions were to be presented towards the court, a warning was given to the gentlemen of the jury that nothing in them was to be taken as evidence against Anne Kennett. Anne was distressed throughout, and once, upon seeing her father, she burst into tears and attempted to throw herself into his arms. She also requested that she be allowed to stand apart from Holloway. The jury acquitted her of the capital charge, and she was returned to custody for another indictment to be filed. Holloway's confessions were then read out to the assembled jury and crowd, and very quickly a verdict of guilty was returned. Holloway's only response was, Amen. Throughout the whole affair, letters and confessions of Holloway's were published by the local press, with Holloway variously protesting his innocence or Anne's innocence, and throughout attempting to show a perfect godliness on his part. Many of the letters read as sermons, but this understanding of the Bible and faithfulness that he showed was belied by his actions and his protestations that he should not have his capital sentence carried out. But that fell on deaf ears. He was indeed hanged in a public execution. He made a full confession before his death, saying that he had in fact been aided by Anne, who had hid in the cupboard. He took to the scaffold, saying prayers throughout and beseeching the Lord to take his soul to heaven. When he was cut down, it was discovered that his neck had not broken, so therefore he had strangled to death. It was estimated to have taken no more than a minute. Reports state that he didn't suffer for too long. Nice. He was brought to the local hospital, where his body was displayed to the public for a small price yet again, before the body was turned over to the anatomists for dissection. This was the time of the body snatchers, after all. The medics were eager to get their hands on the corpse. This was the first time that a body was found disposed of in a trunk in the city of Brighton. But it would not be the last. 
just over a hundred years later, the 6th of June, 1934. It was a busy, sunny day as holidaymakers descended on Brighton. Not unusually, there was a queue at the left luggage section of the railway station, which joined Brighton to the other population centres, and was the main mode of transport down from London. At the hatch, a man stood in the queue, waiting to deposit what would be the seventeenth trunk that was left at the station that day. He was given a receipt, thanked the attendant, and walked away, never to be seen again. The trunk was hoisted into the storage room, and it was deposited into a corner there, where it stayed for about a week. It wasn't unusual for luggage to sit in storage for prolonged periods of time. Some of it even arrived unaccompanied, sent ahead of the traveller, and would sit waiting until they arrived for it to then be removed to their lodgings. And so this large, leather-bound trunk sat. Until the employees noticed an awful smell, like something rotting inside. They thought that it must be fruit or some other foodstuff left behind and tried to carry on with things, thinking that someone would eventually turn up to collect the trunk with their belongings inside. People didn't just abandon trunks, particularly when they're full of stuff. Eleven days after the trunk was left, though, the stench was absolutely intolerable. The clerks and the porters in the railway couldn't stand being in the room with it. It reeked. The trunk would have to be opened and moved somewhere else if they were going to be able to continue working. The trunk looked like any other. There was nothing particularly unusual about it, bar the horrific smell emanating from it. So they pulled it into the middle of the storeroom and popped open the lock. What they discovered inside were a number of brown paper packages tied with a cord from a Venetian blind. The largest package contained the torso of a woman, and the smaller contained a pair of ladies' hands. The head, legs, and arms of the woman were missing. The shocked and disgusted porters scrambled to inform the police of what they had found, and when the police saw what they were dealing with, they immediately began to search for other items of left luggage on the railways that might contain the rest of the unidentified woman's remains. They worked quickly, notifying the rail stations to look out for unusual or smelly luggage. And by the next day, they had located another trunk, this time containing two legs and two feet, in King's Cross Station in London. These body parts had also been wrapped in brown paper. The second trunk had been left on the 7th of June to the cloakroom of the station, and again, no one had taken note of the person who dropped it off. It was the height of summer, and all of the rail stations were busy. Whoever it was had queued up, dropped off the case, and disappeared back into the crowds, just like he had done in Brighton the day before. No further related trunks or remains of the woman were ever found. One of England's premier pathologists, Sir Bernard Spilsbury, who had been investigating crimes for over 25 years, had been called the day before to go down to Brighton to examine the remains found in the first trunk. When the second trunk was discovered, he examined these two, and then directed for the remains to be sent down to Brighton so that he could examine all the remains together. 
he was quite sure that the remains all belonged to the same body. When he returned to Brighton, he made his examination. He determined that the body was that of a woman in her late twenties to mid-thirties, probably around five foot two inches in height. He described her as shapely. He estimated that she had weighed eight stone seven pounds, which is 119 pounds or 54 kilos, and he found that she was about five months pregnant. Spilsbury determined that she had been murdered and then dismembered maybe a few days before being left in the trunks, and the person who had done the dismembering had had no anatomical knowledge. It was a crude job. He thought that it was likely that she came from a middle-class background because he noted that her hands and feet were well cared for. Her nails were neatly trimmed, clean and tidy, and there was no indication that she had engaged in strenuous work at any point. That said, I personally find it odd that a middle-class woman, pregnant and reasonably mature in age, would go missing and then never be identified. The rest of her body was never found, making identification impossible at the time, and no one ever matched her to a missing person's report at the time either. To this day, she remains unidentified. Little had changed in a hundred years, and the newspapers once again ate up the drama of finding body parts scattered across the southeast. It was gory, and it was a mystery, and there were enough developments in a short period of time to whet people's appetite. On the 29th of June, the Daily Mirror's headline read, Body in Suitcase, New Shock, with the tagline, King's Cross Discovery, Secret Information, and the Clue of Four Letters. The only clue from the rest of the contents of the trunk was a scribble on brown paper, the word Ford, F-O-R-D, it was in blue ink, and there were other letters before it, maybe a D or an L, but a smear of blood made it impossible to make out. It was thought at the time that the paper may have come from a confectionery company in Bedford, but it was impossible to say for sure, and anyhow it was also impossible to trace that any further. A woman had contacted the police after the information was circulated, saying that she thought that the writing might be hers, from when she was sending back an order to a sweets factory in Bedford, but the factory reported that they reused this paper to send out other packages all over the country. There was no way to tell where the woman's scrawled note had ended up next, or who had had access to it. The trunks themselves also showed up very few clues. The one found in Brighton was brand new, probably bought for the purpose of disposing the body. The London case had also contained a washcloth and some low-quality cotton wool, neither of which were any use to the police to identify who the case had previously belonged to. 732 missing persons were investigated by the police. 24 women had been reported missing from Brighton alone at the time. They even consulted a medium to help with identifying the murderer, but it came to nothing. Shocker. They tried to look into the people who had bought tickets to Brighton from London the day the trunk was checked in, but they weren't able to trace everyone. A month later, on the 15th of July, Brighton police found a black leather trunk at number 52 Kemp Street, which is just a few minutes' walk from the train station in the city. 
A search had been conducted in the area in the hope that they would find the remaining body parts from the woman in the trunks from the railway stations and therefore would be able to identify her and solve the case. Number 52 was just one of many houses on the street and in the environs of the station that had been searched in the hopes of making a break in the case. But there had been a delay in searching number 52. The owner was away in London when the search initially happened, and the tenants weren't in, so there was no access to the house. When the owner returned, many of the tenants had moved on, and with a near-empty house, the owner decided that this was an ideal opportunity to redecorate the whole place. They wanted to stop taking in tenants and make use of the whole house themselves. In a strange coincidence, neither the owner nor his wife had a sense of smell, and so it was the painter-decorators who noticed the smell coming from a trunk in one of the rooms and alerted the police. The police made their way into the basement flat of number 52, and when the smell hit them, they knew what they were about to find. They collected the trunk and brought it straight to Brighton Police Station, where it was photographed before being opened. When they lifted the lid of the trunk, they didn't find the missing body parts of the unidentified woman. They found the dead body in its entirety of another woman altogether. Another investigation had to be begun. The police got the description of the man who had rented that particular room in number 52. He was about 26, maybe 5 foot 10. He had what was described as a cast in one eye, some sort of a squint or a wandering eye, and he had a sallow complexion. He looked a bit Italian. They found out that his name was, wait for it, Jack Noter, a.k.a. Tony Mancini, a.k.a. Antoni Pirelli, a.k.a. Hyman Gold, etc., etc., etc. His actual name was in fact Cecil Louis England, not an Italian at all. Sir Bernard Spilsbury was called in again to do the post-mortem for this second woman. She had a fracture on the right side of her head, consistent with a violent blow to the head with a blunt instrument. The body was identified as 42-year-old Violet Kay. She was one of the names that had been reported missing that the police had looked into earlier in the month. In her youth, she had been a professional dancer, some say an exotic dancer, but as she matured, she found it increasingly difficult to find work, and so she supplemented her income with sex work. She was born Violet May Watts and was one of a staggering 16 children in her family. Violet had been sharing a flat with a man at number 44 Park Crescent, Brighton. He had said his name was Tony Mancini. He had been interviewed when she was first reported missing, but the police had confirmed that Violet was not the woman in the trunk at the station, and so they had moved on. That woman was too young to be Violet. Tony Mancini had been a waiter at the Skylark Café out on the Brighton seafront. He had a criminal record for loitering and theft, but thought of himself as a bit of a gangster. Violet had last been seen alive on the 10th of May, standing at the entrance of the basement flat on Park Crescent, which she shared with Mancini. The man that had seen her, Mr. Kerslake, reported that she was distressed and twitching as if she had been drugged. 
The next day, on the 11th of May, Violet's sister, Olive Watts, received a telegram purporting to be from Violet, which said, quote, Gone abroad. Good job. Sail Sunday. Will write. Bye. Olive thought it strange. Telegram was written in all capital letters, and the two of them had planned to go away on holidays just a few days later. Mancini had only moved to 52 Kemp Street from Park Crescent on the 14th of May with the help of a friend named Capelin. One of the items he was to help move was a large, super-heavy trunk, which needed the help of a handcart. It was that heavy. Mancini had told everyone who would listen that he had left Violet because he was sick of her nagging and that she had left the country and gone off to Montmartre in Paris. But he also told his friends of his troubled relationship with her. To one he said, quote, What's the good of knocking a woman about with your fists? You only hurt yourself. You should hit them with a hammer the same as I did and slosh her up. End quote. Charming. When the police searched his old flat in Park Crescent, they found a burned hammerhead. The landlady reported that she had noticed a fluid of some sort leaking from a trunk in his flat, and that Mancini had told her that it must have been a tin of French polish that he had knocked over. A few days after the search on the 14th of July, Mancini packed his bags, spent the night with friends, and left the next morning for London. He left the leaky trunk in his room at Kemp Street. He was arrested on the 17th of July at Blackheath on the Maidenstone Road, and he was brought back to Brighton. He was greeted outside the police station by crowds who gathered to catch a glimpse of the dancing waiter, as he had been dubbed by the press. Despite the heat of the summer, 1934 was a record year. People lined the streets outside the courthouse where he was to be charged. When questioned by the police at the charging, he admitted that he had been in a relationship with Violet, but insisted that he did not kill her. He was brought before Lou's winter assizes on the 10th of December 1934, with Mr Justice Branson presiding. Again, crowds gathered in Lou's for the trial of the dancing waiter, which was covered heavily in the press. Violet's mother attended the trial and watched tearfully as her daughter's lover was tried for her murder. The first witness called in the trial was a Mr. Henry Snuggs, who had been Mancini and Violet's landlord at 44 Park Crescent. He told the court how the two had rented the basement flat from him under the names Mr. and Mrs. Watson. He had last seen Violet, Mrs. Watson, on the 7th of May, when she had paid the rent. On the 14th of that month, Mr. Snuggs saw Mancini with another woman, a young girl who Mancini introduced to him as his sister. He told the landlord that Violet had left him and had run off to France and that therefore he would no longer be renting the flat. Another witness was the owner of a furniture store in Brighton at the market. He told the court all about how he had sold a trunk to Mr Mancini in May of that year. Mancini's friend, Mr Capelin, described moving the trunk from number 44 Park Crescent to number 52 Kemp Street and how heavy the damn thing had been. Mancini had told him that it had china and clothing in it. Violet's sister, Olive, also took to the stand and spoke about the telegram which she had received purporting to be from Violet. Olive told the court that the writing was not her sister's and that, furthermore, the address had been misspelt. 
a Mr. Gurren, a handwriting expert, took to the stand to compare Mancini's handwriting from a menu at the Skylark Café to the telegram, which Gurren found was the writing of the same person, that is, Tony Mancini. Evidence was also heard about the smell that had emanated from the basement flat at Kemp Street. Mancini had told some people that it was disinfectant. To another lodger, he said that it was his football kit or some rubbish or something stinking up the place. To yet another, he said the smell was due to the fact that he hadn't opened the windows in the flat in some time. It needed airing out, he had said. The woman that Mr. Snuggs had seen Mancini with was identified as a Miss Elizabeth Atrell, a waitress at the Skylark Café, who worked with Mancini. She told the court about an argument that had occurred between Mancini and Violet at the café on the 10th of May. Violet was obviously drunk and had turned up accusing Mancini of cheating on her with the teenage Miss Atrell. Apparently, Violet had made a total scene. The next day, on the 11th, Mancini had been out dancing with Elizabeth at Sherry's, and Mancini had told her that Violet had left him and buggered off to Paris. Later, he gave her some of Violet's clothes, saying she no longer needed them. The younger girl had insisted that her relationship with Mancini was just a friendship, but she did say that she had done his washing for him on occasion. Apparently, this had some sort of implication attached to it in 1930s Britain, but what that is, I'm not sure. Once, she said, one of his shirts had had a bloodstain on it, about the size of a farthing, she told the court. When Elizabeth had asked Tony about it, he told her he had cut himself shaving. Dr. Roach Lynch was called to give evidence regarding the blood that was found to have stained a number of Mancini's pieces of clothing. He was an analyst from the Home Office and had examined two shirts, two pairs of trousers and a handkerchief of Mancini's that was stained with blood. He told the court that Violet's body had been too badly decomposed to get a blood type from it. But counsel for Mancini tore Dr. Lynch and his evidence apart. There was no way to know whose blood it was or how it got onto the clothing, and Dr. Lynch admitted this. Norman Burke at Queen's counsel had the doctor admit that it was possible that the blood might have come from something like a cut finger. Then the barrister went on to prove, without a doubt, that the shirt that the doctor had examined with the blood on it, presented at court, had in fact been purchased after Violet's death, and that therefore this most certainly could not have been the victim's blood. Next on the stand was Sir Bernard Spilsbury. He told the court that the injury to Violet's head was likely caused by something like a hammer, but Burke had countered this by saying that, as morphine had been found in her body, was it not a possibility that Violet had been under the influence and fallen down the stairs and hit her head on an iron rail at the bottom of the steps? Or maybe she had hit her head off the window ledge at the bottom of the stairs. Was this not a possibility? Spilsbury said that, in his opinion, this wasn't what had happened. But Burkett pressed on. Was it not at least possible that her injury, which was only one-eighth of an inch of a depressed area in her skull, might have been caused by such a fall? Grudgingly, Spilsbury admitted that it was in fact possible, but reiterated that he believed the injury was caused by a hammer, but here in snuck doubt. 
Next to take the stand was Tony Mancini himself. After he took the oath, he was seen fumbling with something, taking it out of his pocket. The judge demanded to know what it was, and Tony held up a set of black rosary beads. The judge asked, Are you Catholic? And Mancini responded, I was. He told the court that Violet had worked out of the flat that they both shared, and that she often had clients to Park Crescent. He admitted that he had lived off the money that she had made plying her trade. He told the court that Violet drank too much, and that she was often drunk. She'd had a client with her on the 9th of May for about 30 minutes, and told him that the John had given her 50 shillings, £2.50 at the time, or with inflation, about 160 quid in today's money. The next day, when she turned up to fight with him at the Skylark Cafe, she was staggering about and seemed to be drunk. Or something, he had said. When he got home that evening after work, the front gate leading down to the basement flat was open. This was quite unusual. He rang the bell for the door, but no one came to answer it, so he managed to climb into the flat through a window. When he got into the bedroom, he saw Violet's coat lying on the floor. Then he saw her lying on the bed, with her knees tucked up under her chin in a fetal position, clutching the sheets in her hand. Initially, Mancini said he thought she was asleep, so he shook her, but when he touched her, he realised that she was cold. Then he noticed that there was blood on her pillow. He shook her again and told her to wake up, and then put his hand on her chest and realised that she had no heartbeat. It was then that he knew she was dead. He told the court that when he realised that Violet was dead, he thought immediately that if he told the authorities what had happened, it would be assumed that he had done it. He had a record, and he was living with her, and living off the money that she made from sex work, and he found her body. He figured he'd be stitched up quickly by the coppers, so he decided that the best course of action was to try and cover the whole thing up. He first shoved Violet's body into a cupboard for the night. He found a letter from her sister Olive discussing the holiday that they were to take in a few days' time and realised that he would have to give her some sort of explanation for Violet's disappearance. He came up with the story that Violet had run off to Paris. He sent the telegram to Olive and began spreading the story about. He then went and bought the trunk that he moved Violet's body into, which was later moved by his friend to Kemp Street. He never wavered with this story from the moment he was arrested and was insistent that she either fell or had been killed by one of her clients. He was innocent. When closing statements were made, Mancini's counsel, Mr. Burkett, made his case that the jury were not warranted in finding his client guilty. He said, quote, Now that the whole of the matter is before you, I think I am entitled to claim this man a verdict of not guilty and members of the jury, in returning that verdict, you will vindicate a principle of law, that people are not tried by newspapers, not tried by rumour, but tried by juries called to do justice and to decide upon the evidence. I've asked you for, and I appeal you for, and I claim from you, a verdict of not guilty. End quote. Worthy of any good court scene in The Good Wife, right? finish off, he raised his voice in a rallying cry of, quote, stand firm. The jury retired for two and a half hours. Burkett had been effective. Mancini was found not guilty. Despite all his pomp and well-delivered oratory, 
Burkett vehemently disliked his client. Though the win in this case is often considered the highlight of Burkett's career, he said later that the victory had given him very little pleasure, and that he thought of Mancini as, quote, a despicable and worthless creature, end quote. After the trial, Mancini changed his name and carried on with his life. He went from purported gangster to taking part in a magic act in a circus, and eventually he went off to sea. A few years after Mancini walked away a free man, Britain declared war against Nazi Germany. London was bombed and armies invaded beaches in Normandy. Then the war was over. Eventually, rationing was done away with, a new queen was crowned, a World Cup was won, governments formed and collapsed, the Cold War became a feature of life, and the Beatles took over the world, and society moved on. Forty-two years later, in 1976, Tony Mancini decided to leave obscurity behind. He had the idea that he might write an autobiography. He was 65 and was living in the north of England and didn't expect to last much longer. He said he wanted the truth to come out. He approached the news of the world and decided to give an interview to tell the story of what really happened. He didn't give his assumed name, and the News of the World were anxious to point out that they hadn't paid Mancini any money for the interview. Perhaps they wanted to distance themselves from what this old man had to say, because what he had to say was extraordinary. Mancini told the newspaper that he was actually guilty of the murder of Violet Kay. He had just made up his mind to stick to the story that he had been afraid to inform the authorities of her death when he had found her on the bed, in case they might blame him for the murder. He kept his story simple and straightforward and made sure never to waver from it. He practiced his testimony on the stand. Not only what he would say, but how he would say it, how he might hold his hand at one point, and when he might begin to cry at another. He practiced it over and over in the hopes that somehow he'd be able to get away with the murder, that he'd be able to convince the jury. He didn't have much hope, but there was a little there for him, and after all, the punishment for murder in 1932 was death. He did not want to follow in John Holloway's footsteps as a condemned man, and his criminal past left no room for Holloway's godliness. If convicted, Mancini would pretty much be on his own. The only people who had stood by him were his close family and a very limited number of friends, who seemed to believe that he hadn't killed Violet. Pretty much everyone else was against him. He told the paper how masses of people had turned up to boo and hiss at him when he appeared in court, and that he had to be brought in and out through a back door to avoid a lynch mob. The judge, he said, Justice Branson, had been ready to sentence him to death and had come prepared to the courtroom with the black hat that he would don to sentence Mancini to hang. But Mr. Justice Branson was most certainly surprised when the jury foreman announced that they had found Mancini not guilty. Tony told the News of the World, quote, I'll never forget the look on the judge's face when he said, you are discharged. If looks could kill, I'd have been executed on the spot, end quote. In truth, Mancini was surprised too. 
He went on to tell the newspaper that he felt it time he came clean of his heinous act and wanted to make sure that he met his maker with a quote-unquote clean sheet. He never did write an autobiography. So, there you have it, folks. One trunk murder where the culprit gets away with it, only for a few weeks before he's caught, tried, and hanged, and another who managed to avoid the consequences of his actions for the rest of his life. And a third, still unsolved, the victim unidentified to this day. Apparently, Brighton has a thing with trunk murders. Remember that if you ever find yourself there, taking in the nightlife, having an ice cream by the pier, and most certainly, don't mess with left luggage there. Thank you for listening to the Men's Rare podcast. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use. It really does help others to find us, and I love to hear what you think. You can also find us on Twitter and on Facebook at Men's Rare Pod, and check out our discussion group on Facebook too for links to articles and pictures from the cases that we cover. I'd like to take a moment to thank our supporters on Patreon. Thank you to Brooke Aloa, Kate White, and Cynthia Cooper, some of our newest patrons. Thanks very much, guys. Your support means a lot and helps to cover some of the costs of the production of the show. There are some nice little perks, including bonus content available and swag. So if you can drop some change in the collection basket, feel free. And now to thank our five-star reviewers on Apple Podcasts. Thank you to Scully Mama. Thank you for your kind words about the Carrie Baby case episode. That one is a special case to me, so I love getting the positive feedback about that one. Thank you to Nikki T from the Strictly Homicide podcast for your five stars as well. If you haven't checked out Nikki's podcast, Strictly Homicide, I definitely go check it out. It's a really good podcast. Thank you to either Rune's Laughter or Rune Slaughter, whichever. I'll try to keep the episodes long from now on. Thank you so much for your kind words and your five stars. And finally, to Irish Girl 76 thanks again for your five stars. And thanks for binging. I love a good binge listen. Hopefully you don't have to wait too much longer before the next episode drops. So thank you to everyone who has listened, who has given five stars or left a review. I really do love hearing your feedback. It really makes my day when I get some kind words over the internet. It makes all of this really worthwhile to know I'm not screaming into the void. So our theme song is Quinn's Song First Dance by Kevin MacLeod. As always, with thanks to Ronan McHugh for help with sound engineering. Next week, we'll be back in Ireland into our shady past and we'll be looking at a notorious woman who both broke the law and killed at least two people and also played a vital role in the city of Dublin in the 40s and 50s. Till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. (laughs) 